Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of 28 Days Later. I am one of your hosts, Sophie, joined as always by my co-host in beauty and sweat, my young, younger sister, Hannah. <laughs> Hannah, we're into summertime and that means it's fucking hot as shit all the it's time. It's hot and I don't have really, I don't really have air conditioning in my apartment. But I Well turn. yeah, plus like Fun fact for anyone who's listening, if you don't podcast or haven't been on someone's podcast, you can't really run AC during a podcast because mm-hmm. it's really loud. So just I want all of you to know that when you're listening to all of your favorite podcasters through the months of like May until August, they are just uncomfortably sweaty while they talk to you because they need you to get your fucking media. <laughs> like, I don't even have air conditioning, so I just have like a 360, not 360, 180. Whatever. I have a fucking fan that spins. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And I have to turn Um, it off for this. Now, Hannah, speaking of places that are tropical, uh, and I don't just mean are on air-conditioned apartments, uh, over the weekend, that that segue was flawless. I'm just going to mark it. Uh, Yep. No, just roll with it. Over the weekend... We both watched Fantasy Island for a little live tweet I do called Tweet with BGH, and you had some feelings about Fantasy Island that I think you need to share with our listening audience. I like how you're setting that up. Like, I have some really harsh feelings that I need to get off my chest. Mm-hmm. She has some thoughts, you guys. get Brace yourselves. It was the opposite, where I texted you toward the end, and I was like, Sophie hot take but i'm really enjoying this movie <laughs> the best part of this was that hannah was tweeting from our podcast's account yep so she was just like at a certain point the tweets got like took a positive bent and i was like now everyone's gonna think that we like this movie and then hannah texted me and was like this movie was kind of good and i was like oh no i didn't say it was good i just said okay, i had, you had a good fun. time yeah I will, I will back you up. Like I, it was a good, bad. Like I would watch as I texted you. I was like, I fully support a sequel. (laughs) I don't know if I'd go that far. It was fun to watch. It was very silly. And it had a lot of like actors that you know from other things. So that was fun. Exactly. Like I liked, like I said to you earlier, I liked watching people I like do stuff. For fun. <laughs> so, I want that to be the co, like the subtext, the sub, uh, subhead of our podcast. It's like 28 days later, we like watching people we like do stuff for fun. <laughs> um, no, I, I found, um, I would get angry if I got like bored or, you know, but I didn't really get bored. Definitely parts of it. I was like, this isn't. Great. I don't know. I just had fun. <laughs> now, since I've already made one flawless segue this episode, I'm going to do a second one. Hannah, brace yourself. So the the actress whose name I can't remember of the girl who played Arya in Pretty Little Liars, her name Hannah. Lucy Hale. So Lucy Hale's character was bullied in high school. I was also bullied in high school. And if you're <laughs> going to be bullied in high school, there's a very particular person you want to have by your side. For me, that person was Reed Schmidt, and Reed Schmidt is our guest on this episode. Reed, please introduce yourself. That was a sweet introduction. I didn't realize that's where you're going with it. Hi, everyone. Me either. (laughs) 
Um, no, one of my, I'm sure Reed will remember this, uh, because one of the best things about Reed is that he has, like, the most wonderful, like, sentimental photographic memory, so he remembers all the beautiful things you want a person to remember about all of your childhood memories, but, um, I, uh, as Hannah jokes, high school was not always nice for me, and, um, I got dumped by my boyfriend the day after he asked me to prom, (laughs) And then he asked someone else. Um, so that that was my junior prom, and it was going to be pretty contentious. And so if you stop bragging that you got asked to prom. Oh, my God. Yeah, <laughs> everyone, every girl dreams to be asked to prom and then dumped by her boyfriend the next day. Um, but if that happens to you, what you want to have is a person like Reed Schmidt, who at every opportunity would, like, very like haughtily walk me past the table where my ex was sitting and be like, you won, you won, you won, you won. It was you very won. lovely. You won. <laughs> you won. Exactly like that. Um, but Reed mo- maybe most famously is the person who got me into horror. Um, I think Reed, the first horror movie we ever watched together was Halloween, which you brought to a Halloween party. Is that accurate? It was either Kelly's Halloween party. Mm-hmm. It was Kelly's Halloween party. I didn't bring it. I just, I think I was one of the few people that had already seen it, you know, 20 times. But I remember yeah, it, was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was playing on the TV when we all walked in. So it was ready to go. Oh, man. I just remember, like, that movie scared the shit out of me. And, Reed, you and I had been friends for several years. I don't know, like, it feels like once I got to a place that I could watch scary movies, which took a long time, like, our friendship took on a very different uh, embodiment, where it was, like, now, like, Reed wants to educate me and also scare the shit out of me on a regular basis. (laughs) It's the best way to learn. It's like, throw them in the deep end. Uh, Reed, this is my favorite story. Can you tell the listeners how you and I became friends? Because, like, this is just one for the goddamn history books. Yes, and there's a a second part to it, which we didn't discuss before the show. Uh, We first met in seventh grade, and we had a study hall together, and it was in Mr. Tucker's classroom, and Mr. Tucker taught English. And he had traditional desks, but he also had four plush, comfy love seat chairs and there would always be a race for whoever could be the first ones into that study hall would claim that chair there was one chair out of those four that was just the plushiest the comfiest the best mm-hmm. and sophie and i would race against each other every time to get it like we would see each other in the hallway we'd make eyes and then we'd turn and we'd run we'd like shove each other into the into the <laughs> the walls and to, just to just to try and get there first but we did it we did it out of love and camaraderie and fun, and that's how we became friends. But then also uh, something else sentimental that I keep close to my heart. During those study halls, at one point, I asked Sophie I could borrow a mechanical pencil. And I did, and she lent me one because she's a very generous person. And I'd kept it for years and years and years. In fact, I'm holding it in my hands right now since seventh grade. Okay, guys, so, uh, yeah, uh, Reed's fucking cuteness just broke the internet. We're so sorry. Um, 
But all jokes aside, our listeners have probably noticed that Hannah and I sometimes have issues with recording. Uh, We record our podcast on cast, which we really love, but every once in a while we hit a snag. So that was one of them. What you would have heard if my internet didn't just completely lay down and die was uh, just me squealing in high-pitched sounds that would have broken your headphones anyway. So I think it's probably better that you didn't hear them. (laughs) Um, Sounds about right. Suffice it to say that if you are a person who appreciates this podcast or appreciates my commentary on horror, those things would probably not exist if it weren't for Reed. So we're very excited to have him on this episode. Thank you for having me. Um, and Hannah, you and Reed were in some plays together, I think. Yes, we were in um, multiple plays together, and in particular one where... I played a boy and I wore my headgear. Oh, I on forgot stage. about that. <laughs> yeah. Which one was that? I'm trying to remember. I remember. That was uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh, Midsummer Night's. Yes. Okay. Somehow, you... somehow, Miss Bowers found out. Like she overheard us joking about how I wore a headgear at night, and she was like, "You gotta wear that in the show." <laughs> that is so messed up. And I ended up playing. I think that was my that was my freshman year of high school, so I ended up playing a boy who wore <laughs> headgear mm-hmm. in my first performance ever in a high school play. Were you part of the the acting troupe at the end that does the story within a story? Yes, I was. That rings a bell. <laughs> that was the now, wall. Here's the what's wall, maybe yes. the best part of that story is like in no other week. Would I have been able to make this segue, but I'm going to. Isn't it strange that we are watching a horror movie, which involves a headgear, in the same week that Hannah tells a story about wearing a headgear? Um, I did not prep you up top, Reed, but I only saw this movie because of you. So do you want to give us a little like plot synopsis for this awesome movie we're covering this week? Ooh, I feel so unprepared. I can give it a shot. <laughs> You're going to nail it. Hannah and I are never ready to do this. So we are talking about El Orfanato, translated to The Orphanage, a 2007 Spanish horror movie, in case the title didn't give it away, directed by J.A. Bayona. I probably said that wrong. And it's about a husband and wife who purchase a big old house that used to be the orphanage the wife herself grew up in. They move in with their adopted son, intending to turn the mansion into back into an orphanage but her son starts talking about all the imaginary friends that he's made and before they can officially reopen the orphanage for business uh the main character laura her son goes missing and she thinks that it may be the cause of the vengeful spirit of a child that died in the house back in the 70s that was beautifully done that was honestly one of the best synopses we've ever done Wow, Um, shots fired. So, uh, yeah, (laughs) Hannah, step up your game. Um, Hannah, tell me, you had seen this movie previously, is that correct? Um, Yeah, well, I I watched it, um, I think I watched it after you guys had watched it in high school. Oh, we Um, did not watch this in high school. I, I, if I remember correctly, Reed and our friend Max, who does not like scary movies, and I watched this together over like a winter or fall break in college. So it was, I would I say it was sophomore year, winter break. 
Yeah, yeah that sounds okay. right. So that track, because I, I would have been um, a sophomore in high school when that happened. So then I either, I just heard a lot about it from you. And then I watched it toward the end of high school and um, my high school time. Um, and then I, uh, I mean, I love this movie and I ended up writing about it in college um, as well. So I also watched it a couple times for college when I was in school for film. I wrote a lot about this movie. And that's kind of shocking because listeners to this podcast, if they heard our most recent episode on The Wind, are aware that, Hannah, you do not like scary movies with ghosts. You don't fuck with ghosts at all. I don't do ghost movies, like, ever. But this movie, I think, works for me in that although the ghosts are pretty fucked up, they're also, like, misguided. Like, Like, I think Guillermo del Toro... Even though, you know, he produced the movie, didn't direct it, but similar kind of thing where, like, the ghosts in his movies are usually trying to help the protagonist, but just can't express that in the right way. Um, I feel like El Orfanato kind of falls into that category a little bit, where it's like the ghosts are misguided, but... They're not malicious. Mm-hmm. Yes, they're not malicious. They're, they're. It's not as scary to me as like I don't know, like a paranormal activity or like the haunting of Hill House, which I've heard from a million people. I should never watch because I don't do ghosts. Yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely don't watch that, Hannah. It, I'm currently rewatching it while we're quarantined, and you should not watch it. Um, <laughs> so, Reed, give us a quick breakdown uh, of your experience with this movie and how you feel about it. I I watched it uh, shortly after it was released on DVD, so it was either late 2007 or early 2008, and I can't remember how I found out about it, but it found its way to my Netflix list, and I absolutely loved it from the first time that I saw it because it wasn't just it wasn't just a horror movie full of cheap scares and a hollow story like it was a really well-written drama that Mm. had this shadow of the paranormal hanging over it Mm. like it except for maybe one moment which i'm sure you can remember the one i'm talking about there's never like a jump scare that just tries to get the audience to well jump Mm. it's just it's much more about tension atmosphere and like i said it's the drama of it all Mm -hmm. i think that's a really good point Yeah, and I think Hannah alluded to this. Um, Part of the reason that we're discussing this movie with Reed is the first time that I saw this movie was with Reed, and we watched it with our dear friend Max, um, who does not like scary movies and gets scared pretty easily. Uh, I think we watched it at my house, if I remember correctly. Um, And the jump scare to which Reed is alluding, I still remember to this day that I, like, almost fell off the couch. I jumped so hard. Um... (laughs) But this is definitely a movie that sort of came relatively, for me, came early on in my developing as a horror fan and has been sort of a touchstone for me that I have returned to over and over again. Uh, Reed mentioned the director, J.A. Bayona, who also directed a really beautiful movie. I don't know if either of you saw A Monster Calls. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, which I think like does a lot of the same stuff 
that this movie does in a very different genre where we're dealing with sort of a supernatural or fantastical element that is standing in as a theme for something else. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then Hannah will probably not be impressed by this, but he also directed the sequel to Jurassic World. Oh, I was Um, afraid that was going to come up. Well, but I was going to say, so I did not think that movie was very good. However, when we get into the third act of that film, where we have, like, spoiler, I guess, for Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, but you have this weird, genetically mutated half-raptor thing wandering around a super fancy gothic house. And all of those shots are filmed in such a like universal monster movie way. And that movie is not good, but those (laughs) sequences are clear that this director has such a beautiful vision and a really good grasp on how to create tension, even with a script that is very, very bad. Was was all I was totally agree there. And I'm (laughs) pretty sure he didn't write it. So when I, when I was looking at his IMDb before we started to see what else of his that I've seen, I thought, oh, Fallen Kingdom? Oh, he didn't write it. Oh, okay, then he gets a pass. Cause, yeah, yes, like, exactly. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all, all those scenes in the mansion were just so him. Mm-hmm, 100%. Like, the atmosphere is all there. Um, it's very, I think, as some, I'm a pretty big uh, Del Toro fan, I think it's pretty easy watching this movie to see the ways that his sort of visual um, fingerprint has influenced this director. And Hannah, I'm glad you brought up why the ghosts in this work for you. There's a really beautiful article I read a few years ago that we'll link to in our show notes. Uh, A film critic out of Chicago that I really love, her name is Tasha Robinson. She used to write for The Dissolve when that was a website that was still functional, uh, RIP The Dissolve. But now she's freelance and she did a piece for Gizmodo a couple of years ago called The Theme That Ties All of Guillermo del Toro's Movies Together. And she talks about the way that del Toro uses uh, ghosts as metaphor. And I think that that certainly holds true um, in this movie as well. Uh, The thing I want to talk about first, because it's the first thing we see in the movie, and it's one of the things I most viscerally remember. uh, And Hannah and I talked talked about this up top before we got on the phone with you, Reed is the movie opens with all these little kids playing a game, like a game that is, uh, seems to be a variant of tag where one kid turns their back to the other kids and knocks and everyone gets to sneak up. Yeah. Right. But when they get to you, you all have to scatter, right? And and they chase you. Um, And it was so cool watching that now. So what they're saying in English, I assume probably not a perfect translation, but a rough translation is one, two, three, knock in the wall, knock on the wall. Yeah, that's exactly and what it, they're saying. It feels a lot like that scene in that uh, very famous uh, sequence in the Conjuring movies where the mom is playing hide and seek and clapping. And it, like, I had forgotten this was mm-hmm. in El Orfanato. And I was like, oh, I wonder if the Conjuring got that idea from this movie. <laughs> like taking this like very, a uh, simple and safe and non-threatening children's game and then bringing it back to be kind of a, a way to build tension later on was so, so well done. I had such a similar thought watching this because I had watched this before, uh, closer to when it had come out, but still, you know, at this point, a long time ago. Um, and then I watched it a lot when I was in college, 
when I wrote a paper on it, but mm-hmm. even that at this point was a couple years ago. Um, so when I was revisiting it this time around, I had a couple moments where I was like, wow, I've been away from this movie long enough that some of this is still fresh to me. And watching it, I was like, wow, this movie mm-hmm. in a lot of ways was ahead of its time for how, like, because I also watched it with my boyfriend and he, a lot of the, t- a lot of the movie was like, I've seen this before. And I was getting frustrated with him because I was like, when this movie came out, this atmospheric dread of a right. horror movie was not a thing yet. It Right. Mm-hmm. Or at least not in this way. Like, this movie did a lot when it came out and deserves, like, the credit it is due. Um, but, and you bringing up the Conjuring thing with the clapping is exactly that, where... Watching the scene when they're knocking on the wall mm-hmm, still mm-hmm. scares me as an adult. I was still scared watching it, and um, I never saw The Conjuring, because I don't do ghosts, and he, and, but he has seen it, and he just kept saying, like, I've seen this already, I've seen this before, and I was getting so mad, because I was like, no, but <laughs> right. this movie did it first. I'm glad that you said that it, uh, <laughs> the un, dos, tres, toca la bread, and the towards the end of the movie scared you because when I was watching this last night uh, likewise it had been a long time since I'd seen it so a lot of it actually felt fresh and things I had forgotten and when she's doing it at the end even though I'm yeah. smiling because I love the sequence I'm my whole body is shivering because at the same time it's mm-hmm. so creepy even though like I know I know what's happening I know what's coming but it's still sending shivers up and down my body yeah I think that's such a, that is such a beautiful way to, that's such a beautiful image of how effective this movie is. I think at this point, all three of us on this, on this episode have seen this movie multiple times. And I had the same experience where there are sequences in this movie where even though I know the story of this movie backwards and forwards, I've seen it several times. All of the set pieces are very familiar to me. There are still scenes where the tension is so palpable. And as I'm sitting here recording with both of you, I am sitting in my guest room with all the lights on and just talking about that scene. I keep looking over my shoulder, like the tension that that scene um, creates and builds is so palpable that even if you know where it's going and you know that ultimately Laura is safe in that situation, it's still really stressful and scary to watch. Absolutely. Like, when I was going back to watch it, I remember this movie scaring me so much when I had first seen it. And there are certain things that I can go back and watch and and when I'm rewatching them feel like this is still scaring me in a way where I know I'm not scared. It's more like I'm having a familiar feeling from when I was a kid and it scared me. Um, But I was, like, in a way pleasantly surprised by the fact that I was like, oh, no, this is, like, actual fear. Like, this is actually making me anxious. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. And that, that scene and- is just so good. And even, like, um, I mean, I know we sort of will often tread lightly about around spoiling things to a degree like, I think we're going to spoil this movie. I have thoughts I want to talk about that will spoil it. 
Yeah. Let's pause here and say if you have not seen this movie, please go watch it before you listen because we are going to spoil it. But this movie is so beautifully crafted, you really should watch yeah. it before so you listen. Absolutely. So, like, I knew going into it, I always remembered that, like, Simone had died um, and that she realizes that at the end of the movie and that she sort of decides to stay with them in the orphanage, like, in the ghost world at the end. Mm -hmm. But I realized watching it this time around that I had forgotten some of the specifics of it. And Mm -hmm. I had originally thought... Like, going into it again after a couple years away, I couldn't remember if he had died in the cave or not. Um, Mm -hmm. So the actual reveal of him being in the basement and that she put the thing in front of the door was, like, a whole new shock to me, even though I had seen it before. But I had completely forgotten about that aspect. Um, Mm -hmm. so that was just, like, an even harder blow (laughs) this time around. And I'm like, how did I forget that? That makes it so much worse. A hundred percent. Well, so before we get all the way to the ending, because I think there is a ton to unpack when we get to the end of this movie, um, I want to talk a little bit about the performances. Um, so the woman who plays, uh, Laura... Belen Ruida. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So the woman who plays the mother, uh, Reed. Reed, you're the only one who took Spanish. I'm going to rely on you to say people's names. Oh, I got, mm-hmm. but I got terrible grades in Spanish. <laughs> I got terrible grades in French, so I don't feel great about even trying. <laughs> Listen, we're going we're gonna to give it our best. Reed, can you say her name one more time? Belen Ruida. Beautiful. Um, I want to talk first and foremost about her performance. I read on IMDb that to prepare her, the director had her watch uh, Close Encounters and Hannah, podcast favorite, he had her watch The Innocence. Ooh, that was my first episode of yours I listened to. Because you had just posted that when Sophie had told me that you had done a podcast. So that was one of the very recent episodes. And, like, I love the implication of having her listen to those two things because I think The Innocence is a movie, I mean, we talked about this in our show, but I think The Innocence is a movie that you can read either way. Either Mm -hmm. she is kind of going nuts or the ghosts are real um, or it's a combination of the two. But obviously in the case of Close Encounters, it's pretty explicitly clear that the, the aliens are a real thing. So... It's interesting in a movie like this that I think up until the very, very end sort of treads on this ground where you're not sure. Um, I think this movie probably leans heavier into the fe- the idea that the paranormal is real than the innocence does. But I like the idea that he wanted her to watch two different performances that are approaching an unknown in very different ways for her performance. Yeah, and... Um... Well, because I think this movie, like you said, sort of treads that line in its own way. Um, So to have her get, like, a a taste of both. And those two movies, too, just, it makes a lot of sense for the atmosphere of this one. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, the gothic horror of The Innocence, for sure. But uh, 
in the innocence she wasn't she hadn't lost a child she was just in fear of like metaphorically losing the children so yeah the close Mm -hmm. encounters aspect of the mother watching her son being taken away was definitely a good source like good homework for her role in the orphanage (laughs) definitely definitely and i feel like uh this actress does such a phenomenal i mean i think this i can't imagine having to play a character because i think one of the things i appreciate the most about this movie that i think will come up again and again in our conversation is that this is a movie that manages to both be an effective horror movie, but also be one of the most beautifully drawn and resonant and emotional and heart-wrenching. It's just a really beautiful uh, story emotionally, and I think it manages to be both devastating, as Hannah alluded to, and also kind of uplifting. Like, it has an ending that straddles a line between being one of the darkest things you've ever seen (laughs) and also kind of having a happy ending. Darkest Um, sketch, darkest sketch. Yes, exactly. (sighs) And I think like balancing those two things and also like being a character who's supposed to be scared and hold all of those things, that's a lot of work for an actor to do. And I think she does a phenomenal job of carrying all of those things kind of equally. Yeah, especially... Uh, when she's in the basement cradling what she thinks is Simone's body and she she has that long monologue as the camera's circling around her and she's just she's mm-hmm. she's great and then uh, finding Simone's body like 20 feet away she just lets loose this heartbreaking no and just how she goes mm-hmm. so quickly from like that optimism of Simone we're gonna get out of here we're gonna be happy and then just complete other direction the crushing realization and heartbreak Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, this movie, like, I finished watching it maybe half an hour before we started recording, and I just remember walking out of the guest room <clears throat> to my partner, who has seen the movie before, and saying, I've seen this movie five to ten times. I know how it's going to end every single time. It never ceases to feel like a massive gut punch. I mean, we mm-hmm. talked a little bit about how this movie maintains its tension and is still scary, even though you know the scares. And I would say the 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 grieving, the weight of the grief that you feel is the same, even though you know how the ending is going to play out. Um, I find myself every time like wishing, hoping it, even though I know it can never be that like she really will find him and he'll be okay. You know, like her performance is so good that you like really get pulled into like she found him. It's all going to be okay. And then it's not, you know? Yeah. But there's like a part of your brain that also feels like I can just pretend the movie ended then. And that that's where it ends. And let's just push pause. The movie's over now. Mm -hmm. She was, she goes back upstairs. Credits roll. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. Well, it's and like the other thing that later, I think, but he's totally fine. He was just in the basement. He somehow yeah, survived six he... months without his medication or food. He's <laughs> he's fine. Also, food. Um, I I think like part of the part of what makes all of the stuff around part all of the emotional part of the movie work is obviously uh, the mother's performance is amazing, but the little boy who plays Simone is so unfucking believably cute <laughs> it is mm. p- 
painful. It is painful how cute he is because, again, if you've seen the movie, like, you know from the jump what's going to happen. And you're just like, oh, oh, no. Oh, please don't. Like, just do what your mom said. Even, like, rewatching it when he's telling her about the game that they play where they they take something special and then you have to figure out Uh where it was kept. Like, re-watching it, I'm like, oh, my God, somebody do something. Yeah. Like, it, it reminds me so much of, and I think I've even mentioned this before on this podcast, but just how on the podcast Dumb People Town, whenever they joke about ghosts in movies, they're like, if I bought a house that I walked into my kitchen and a drawer that I didn't open was left open, I would move. <laughs> it's like we've seen so many horror movies that at this point, if the slightest thing happened, you'd be like, well, I've got to sell my house. Um, and every time that Simone, like, speaks to her in this movie, in the beginning, everything he says is, like, at least now rewatching it is such a giant red flag. <laughs> like, Well, but I think the movie does a good job, right? Because it's established in the movie that he also has imaginary friends. Absolutely. So I think at least initially, yeah, like the parents can write, can sort of like write it off because he has imaginary friends and they want to talk to him about it, but they haven't yet. And so they're they're able to sort of like blow past it. He's scared to sleep in his room because of them. But at the same time, like as parents, you would chalk that up to just the kid being scared to be in the room alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's that one moment I love early on when uh, she and Simone are down by the beach and they're exploring the cave that we later learned Tomas drowned in. And uh, he's talking to his friend, his quote-unquote friend. Mm-hmm. And Laura says, like, oh, no one's there. Let's go back home. But I love that she has that split second where she looks a little deeper into the cave, um, like mm-hmm. looks at Simone's footprints. Just that split moment of is there someone there? Mm-hmm. Just that seed of doubt. Yeah. No, 100%. I think I want to talk a little bit because we've all sort of uh, alluded to it or, or mentioned uh, specific examples. I want to talk about the particular parts of this movie that still creep you out or still scare <laughs> you. I mean, obviously we talked about them playing the game uh I think there are lots and lots of segments in this movie that are super creepy or unsettling or build tension really well. Um, and perhaps one of the one of the best ones that I think is probably what Reed was alluding to earlier was when uh, Benigna, the so this woman shows up early on and says she's a social worker. And um, at that point, we learned that Simone was born uh, HIV positive. Mm. Laura and her husband adopted him. And uh, her husband's a doctor and they've been treating him. Benigna shows up and sort of says, like, there's new experimental treatments that all you have to do is sign up for. And Laura basically asks her to leave and uh, is put off by her, I think, understandably. Later on... She's hearing creepy noises. She goes outside. She finds this old lady in the shed on the property. And the woman just, like, takes a shovel and runs away. But, like, runs very slowly because she's old. (laughs) Which, like, is a scene that is so tense and stressful. But there's something about watching her, like, she's a woman with, like, big Coke bottle glasses that are super thick. And she looks very shocked. And her eyes get super big. And then she's, like, running away with a shovel. And it's kind of silly. Um... 
It, it to me feels like a great way to like let the tension out a little bit. But then later we get this jump scare that is like to call it a jump scare feels a little bit unfair because like it doesn't feel quite that calculated, but it, I mean, it is intended to uh, really release the tension and freak you out where uh, we have learned that there is no such social worker and um, they can't find her. The police can't find her because they're worried that maybe she has something to do with Simone going missing. And so uh, Laura and her husband are driving and they see this old woman and they're like, and she's like, that's her. And then this old woman just out of nowhere gets destroyed by a truck. Just like, <laughs> d- just wrecked. While pushing, and, a, while pushing a baby carriage with a doll in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now we don't know the baby carriage has a doll in it. And so, uh, Laura is worried that her son is in there and then it turns out it's just a doll of the scary imaginary friend person Tom, who Tomas. we later learn is Tomas with the with the uh, sack on his head. And I remember watching this movie with Reed and Reed, you had seen it when we watched it together, right? Like you had seen it already, I think. Yes, I was evilly thinking to both you and Max, I was thinking, oh my God, here it comes, here it comes, here yeah, it comes. Yeah, exactly. That's what, I, that's what I assumed. So like... I I can't remember, maybe you can, I can't remember how Max reacted, but I remember when that woman got hit by a car, I like sprung to my feet and screamed and was just like, what the fuck? <laughs> and like had a really extreme reaction. And then of course, like we, uh, Laura's husband, I can't remember his name, Carlos. Simone's father, whatever the, I feel bad because I feel Bill like Collins. his Carlos I feel bad because I feel like his character is pretty secondary. Like the actor does a great job, but it's not really about him. Oh, this is this is Laura. Yeah, even at the end, I was like, they're just gonna go live happily ever after without him. And then when he came back at the end, I was like, oh, oh yeah, Yeah. I guess he gets to go. Just like oh yeah, also him. But he's a doctor, so he goes to try to help her. And then of course we get to see like a shot of her oh actually you're right reed so the part that scared me was not her getting hit by a truck it's when carlos is like he tries to give her mouth to mouth her face is like destroyed so he has blood on his face her jaws like hanging off and so then um she like uh when laura goes over this old lady like sits up like that was a total great jump no jaw at all sits up and grabs her no no no. she has one it's just like like hanging hanging there yeah it's really it's really upsetting so like that scene like i knew it was coming it still made me jump up in the air and like flail around um and that's the only time the movie really tries a tries like a traditional jump scare like a real gotcha moment Mm. right and it's yeah, like the a rest double of it really whammy is like, with the bus hitting her and, and then the reveal of the hanging jaw. <laughs> yeah. Well, so it's like the bus hits her. That's that's like a jump scare. Then you have the reveal of the gore, which is just like gross. And then you have the jump scare of her grabbing uh, Laura's wrist. And it's just like that scene is so packed with um, things that are going to make you like squirm or jump. Um in the best way. Uh, I'm trying to think there's one, there's at least one other sequence that like, oh, 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 oh. One of the other scenes that this movie does that I think was ahead of its time because so many other movies have done this since is the scene where uh, it's the middle of the night. 
Uh, and oh. Laura wakes up and someone is like in bed snuggling with her and she thinks it's her husband. Like we see the sheets move. I'm like getting freaked out just talking about it. <laughs> she like, we see the sheets move and she again delivers this beautiful monologue about how, I mean, at the, this movie is a, is a horror movie, but at, like I said, it is so emotionally resonant. And along with telling this really depressing story of what happened to Simone, before we know what happened to him, it's really just a, a movie about grief. Like these two parents who have lost a child and their marriage is suffering because they're handling it differently and they don't have any answers. And she gives this beautiful monologue about how hard it is and how, you know, when they got, when they adopted Simone, he was so small and the doctor said he wasn't strong enough and he wouldn't survive, but he was very strong and he made them strong and they're strong together. Like this monologue is beautiful. And then she reaches the end of her monologue and gets really emotional. She's crying and she's saying that she's sorry if sometimes she feels distant. It's just that it's so hard and, and he doesn't say anything and she looks concerned. And then she notices the light is on in the bathroom <laughs> and all of our blood drains out of our body and we're all covered in goosebumps and, and then you shadows see of feet. feet yeah and she's like carlos carlos there's someone in the bathroom and then the bathroom door opens very slowly and it's carlos and there's no one in bed with her and like oh my god <laughs> i just oh no it's so scary even, like even you retelling that scene like i watched it not that long ago and listening to Rita let's see it I'm like on the edge of my seat like <gasps> yeah it's so well done and then even it's Carlos really brushes good. it off because she she says like no Carlos there was someone in the bed I felt the bed move and he goes yeah I, I just got up to use the bathroom <laughs> I know he just like I'm sure he's not doing it on purpose but he really gaslights her at every turn for the entire movie like Everything, you know, uh, we haven't even talked about the medium yet, but she has some mediums come to the house and she is clearly very receptive to it and finds it really helpful. And that's sort of when Carlos is like, this is the last straw. I'm leaving. Mm -hmm. um, I I love that sequence. If we could talk about that for a minute, because I feel like I'm I probably should have given you guys a heads up. So I'm, I know I'm putting you on your toes, but um I feel like so many good horror movies, and Hannah, you may not have a great example on the top of your head because you don't watch a lot of ghost movies, but I feel like so many movies have these great sequences with mediums hmm. coming to the house, and they are they they illustrate the way they talk to ghosts differently depending on the movie. Um, I'm trying to think. I remember watching... The changeling from the eighties. Yes. And, right, and the medium's just like scribbling. My, that scene still gives me chills whenever I think about it. Yes. So like, I love the way that different movies approach that differently, um, and I think this movie does a really cool thing because you always, I feel like whenever you're gonna have a scene where like supernatural stuff is happening and outside medium is gonna come in, you always have a mechanism by which we are quote-unquote objectively measuring what they're doing and in this case it's her assistant like drawing a map of where she's walking in the house on like a, a layout of the floors oh you mean spanish elijah wood 
Yes. <laughs> Especially now that he has like the longer hair and the mustache. I was like, oh, wait. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like I love that sequence. I mean, the scenes with her are very creepy, but then it just keeps cutting to this guy dutifully marking out where she's walked as though this is going to help us like objectively measure what she's doing. And it is startling. I mean, at the end she's in a room and all the cameras go out and when the cameras come back on, she's in a different room and she couldn't have gotten there. He, you know, he kind of draws a line like, Oh, the oh quick well, dash back yeah. to the starting like, point. I don't know how she got there, but she's there now, which is so cool. <laughs> Played by the legendary Geraldine Chaplin worth mentioning. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so guys, I know we have a lot to unpack at the ending. Before we get there, is there anything else that I've that we've missed that we want to sort of address before we go into the final act of the movie? Um, well, for me, it's hard to say because there's parts of this movie that feel so fresh and new to me, but I'm also wondering if that's just because I haven't watched that many ghost movies. Um, but the to sort of do like a callback to um one of our first movies what was the brenda song movie we did <laughs> secret obsession secret obsession we got a little <laughs> bit of a secret obsession moment when she hurt her ankle looking for simone and then she woke up in the middle of the night and went down the corridor in her wheelchair and heard like the really loud thumping mm-hmm. which we also get in crimson peak so very similar moment in that too oh right interesting that's a fascinating tie-in. But a lot of that feels very fresh to me, and and, and I'm not sure if that's just because I haven't watched that many ghost movies, but that stuff really made me jump. <laughs> Hannah, I wonder, I'm really intrigued. I wonder if we can sort of, like, uh, uh, work on your tolerance for ghosty things. Um... <laughs> <laughs> We don't have to. It's just a thought. Start with Casper. Um, let's revisit that. I mean, okay. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Casper. <laughs> okay, so you good. you got me there. Um, but, yeah, that's a, t- that's a tough, tough one for me. Tough topic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, if that's, with that being the case, oh, let's, wait. I guess, move into the, oh, go ahead, Reed. Oh, there's something, something that, um. I don't think it had ever crossed my mind when I'd been watching it in the past, but it came to me last night, or when watching it last night, so I wanted to bring it up as a topic of discussion. So, about halfway, or two-thirds of the way through the movie, when Laura's still looking throughout the house for any sort of clue, and she stumbles across uh, the bones of the orphans from the 70s that were stashed mm-hmm. in the, uh, the furnace outside, and, and that's what the Nina had been trying to get when she caught her, when uh, Lara caught her in there. So Benigna poisoned these kids back in the 70s as revenge for them accidentally killing Tomas with their prank. And right. with the way the police, like the police showed up, it was like, it was like a new investigation. Like, oh, you just discovered these bones that we haven't seen in 30 years. Back in the 70s, that was like a fully staffed orphanage. How, mm-hmm. how was any of that, ex- how did these five six missing children how was that ever explained to the rest of the staff and how was that never looked into more i mean that's a great question (laughs) even in the beginning like the cold open when the when the one woman's on the phone about like 
Laura's adoption, she's like, well, we're really going to miss her, but she she's going to be so happy. And and even for her, to, when she revisits the orphanage, it's like she's forgotten every other child she met and interacted with. But the kids are like five or six. I mean, maybe even older. It's like six to eight-year-olds. Like, wouldn't you think they would remember each other a little more? Like, she she bought the orphanage but never asked what happened to all the kids and people who worked there. Yeah, and uh, when like, she sees the photos, <laughs> I think it was when she's in... She, she got she got all the uh, the Tomas photos and the film reel from the detectives, and it's like there were photos of other staff members. Like just how did how was any of that explained to the rest of the staff? <laughs> like what where did these missing kids go, and why did no one think to check on the woman whose son was just killed too? <laughs> yeah, no, that's such a good point because I think when we learn that Benigna worked there. The police officer is like, you may not remember her. She didn't work there for very long. But it's, but under what circumstances did she leave? Because she obviously worked there long enough to murder all the kids. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So then, like, you'd think if the reason that she lost her job was because she murdered all the kids she was in charge of, that might be a thing that the police would have been aware of. Yeah, it's a very weird, uh... I guess the the implication is supposed to be that because all of the kids are disabled in some way that like nobody would have cared about them. Yeah, I think yeah. which is true. Yeah, yeah, which is like a very upsetting, but maybe not because because also the thing like with her setting up this, um, what she wants to have it seems is not necessarily an orphanage, but like a care facility for people who are. Uh, disabled intellectually or physically but when her son asks you know like what about their parents her response is sort of like these these kids need a lot of help and it would be too much help for them to go and come back they're just they just have to live here but when they have the open house it appears all the kids have families and so it just sort of like again, has this sort of open-ended or doesn't answer the question of, so are are the kids that she is hoping to watch orphans or are they kids who have parents that just aren't able to take care of them? And is and also, I was unclear if that was the case with the kids that she lived with. Mm-hmm. Like, it appears that she was the only uh, able-bodied kid that lived there at the time. And so I was not clear when she lived there if like she was the only child that was actually an orphan or if the other kids were only orphans because they were disabled. I mean, it there's some there is some stuff there that just like doesn't really get unpacked in any way. Yeah, it's I and some of that too reminds me of like the movie Freaks where um you know, in Freaks like they were setting out to humanize like circus freaks. Mm-hmm. And they actually used like quote unquote circus freaks, but they are the they are like the bad guys in certain ways. So that movie is really hotly debated on if it, um, you know, like if it's worthwhile or not for its portrayal of people, mm-hmm. um, with like deformities or, um, I don't know. There's probably a much better way to refer to that, but, um. I thought about that too with this movie where 
in that same respect where it's not exactly clear if the children are in the in the orphanage because they don't have parents or they, they need a caretaker or if they just have some kind of disability that requires a lot of caretaking. And I think like watching this movie in, in 2020 is a bit of a different experience because there were times where the... Because a lot of the children who are um, disabled in the film are being played by actual disabled children. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes their uh, physical differences are, you know, being used to make them scarier. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, that's also like a, that's like a different way that we might watch this movie or read this movie now than when it first came came out if that makes sense like that it's a little more complicated um to portray like a child with a a facial deformity as the bad guy Uh oh yeah that's totally fair because last night after i finished watching i went to the wikipedia just to re-familiarize myself with little nuggets of trivia yeah and there was some reviewer I'm actually scrolling through it now to see if it pops up, but there was one reviewer who criticized that. It's like you're you're making the villain. I mean, ch- children villains are no stranger to horror, but you this Tomas is seemingly the villain because he has this scary face, mm-hmm. and whichever reviewer that was uh, thought that that was a cheap ploy. Yeah, yeah, guys. I'm I'm interested. Though- I feel like. I feel like I may have viewed this movie differently. I, I don't think I've ever seen Tomas as being a villain in this movie. Oh, me neither, for the record. Yeah, but I think... I mean, when you watch the movie, maybe not, but it, when you look at, like, the way the movie is promoted, and one of the things the movie is known for is the creepy kid with the sack mask, you know? I see. Well, and then I think that brings up a question that we can get into as we discuss the ending which is there is a creepy scene in which uh laura is confronted by the child in the mask but is that tomas or is it her her son do you mean when when she gets in the bathroom the bathtub. Mm-hmm. yeah oh i never so thought let's, of it that way. So b- before you answer that question, I'll give a really quick, if for some reason you have uh, ignored all of our warnings and you've gotten to this point, I'm going to give you an explanation of sort of what we learn in the ending. It's a horror podcast. Um, horror is filled with people who ignore warnings. That's 100% <laughs> true. Um, or if you just want a refresher. And so um, the Simone goes missing when uh, there is an open house for the kids that are going to come and live there. And he he wants to show his mom uh, Tomas's secret house. And she's saying, you know, not now. You can show it to me later when we're the only ones here. And he sort of throws a fit and says he wants to do it now. Um, she slaps him and says, well, if you don't want to come down to the party, you don't have to. No one's making you. So she leaves him in his room. And after the movie or after the party um, or during the party, I guess, is when she can't find him. So while the party is happening this child wearing the sort of um it almost looks like a dress i mean it's sort of like a smock that the kids would wear when she lived at the orphanage 
and then a burlap sack with a very um, rough face on it and some sort of like yarn hair. Uh, when she's looking for her son, this child appears at the end of the hallway and approaches her and pushes her into the bathroom and slams the door on her and then locks her in the bathroom. When she gets out of the bathroom is when she starts looking for her son. I think because she thinks that was her son and she wants to talk to him or discipline him. She can't find him anywhere. And at that, it's at that point that he goes missing. Um, and so the movie then jumps forward six months. And so she has not been able to find her son. She and her husband are struggling in their marriage. Obviously, their um, home for children has not opened um, with all of this going on. And so they're just sort of like living in this this huge home alone um, and struggling with their grief. Uh, eventually after the mediums come, her husband Carlos sort of says, I can't live here anymore. I don't think it's a good idea for us to be here. I think we need to go somewhere else, at least for na- for a little while. And she says no. And then she asks to just have one more night in the house. So he leaves for her to have one more night. And she sort of makes the house, turns the house back into how it would have been when she lived there. She replaces all the furniture. She cooks this meal. She puts on one of the orderly sort of um, nanny or staff dresses. And she ends up playing uh, the knocking game. And a bunch of the ghosts come out. And during this game is when she finds Simone. And we learn that he had been able to see the kids and had found the little... um, spot in the basement where Tomas used to live and that when they were when she was at the party he had gone down there and she had unknowingly basically trapped him in there um she went into a closet when she was looking for him and put a bunch of like when she replaced a bunch of stuff it was all leaning against the door so he couldn't get out and so the banging she heard later on was actually him and not a ghost yeah, the banging that she heard when she's in the wheelchair was her son, and the really loud bang was him falling, like, breaks my heart, falling off neck. the stairs um, and and breaking his neck and dying. And so she finds, she thinks she finds him initially, and he's still alive, and like Reed said, she's holding him and cradling him and talking to him, and the camera's sort of, sort of moving around her. And at the end of that sequence, she sort of looks at the blanket, and it goes limp, and she lets go of the blanket. There's nothing there. And then she turns around and sees the emaciated body of her son, which is like one of the most memorable things about this movie mm-hmm. for me. Like that practical effect is so good and so heartbreaking. And the way that the movie like looks at it over and over in a very unflinching way oh. is like absolutely gutting. It is just completely devastating and so um, and I don't think it's like overly I don't think it's like overly done or like overly gross no 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 look at it and feel like oh it's like you look at it and you know what it is and it registers how like fucked up and sad it is like there's nothing gory about it it's just it's yes exactly it's what a child's body that's been in a dark cold cellar for six months would look like it's like mummified practically Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Um, and so ultimately, uh, she decides to, um, and I don't, I don't know that it's this explicit, 
I don't know that... So she commits suicide. I don't know that it's necessarily explicit that, like, she knows if she does that, she will get to stay with him as a ghost. But she wakes up, and um, Simone is with her, and all the other kids are there, and they realize that it's her, and they're very, very happy that it's her. And it's so Laura. the movie's... The, mm-hmm. Oh, that is, like, one of the... And, Reed, I can't watch the ending of this movie without, like, remembering you saying that, like, saying, imitating the little girl. Like, so that's sort of how the Wait, movie ends. Yes. Every time I've ever watched this movie, like, the first time we saw it, I remember you, like, doing that either to me or Max, like, touching our face and going, like, <laughs> es Laura. <laughs> um, but so, anyway, we gave this, I gave this long-winded explanation, which is to say... Every time I watch this movie, I am uncertain of whether the child who pushed her into the bathroom was Tomas or Simone. Because when she finds Simone, he's dressed in Tomas's clothes and he has the mask on. Wait. Really? Yeah. Yeah, she pulls... It's like it's the reveal of the, the body, and she slowly pulls the hood off, and that's when oh, we reveal you're the. Oh, right. When he rolls over on the bed, though, he's just wearing his normal clothes, but that's not really. That's not really him. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Did I just break your brain, Hannah? Yeah, I mean a little bit. Like, I never even. Now here's the thing. What? I'm not con- I'm not decided one way or the other because I think there's a really phenomenal sound effect they do with that kid when it the kid Oof. whichever child approaches her in the growl. hallway is breathing <laughs> and growling in this like really raspy, rattly, scary way that doesn't really make sense for it to be Simone necessarily. However, I'm curious why he's dressed that way when she finds him, unless we are supposed to understand that he's the one who pushed her into the bathroom. Well, but also because when she plays the game at the end where everything is hidden in in a place, Mm -hmm. um, would it make sense for him to be in Tomas's clothes and mask? As a part of that game? Mm, I never thought of it that way. Um, as it being Simone who pushed her into the bathroom. Um, so that's crazy. <laughs> I might do, you, be do you lean one way or the other, Reed? I feel like, like, wait, what? <laughs> I feel like I'm very torn on this. Every time I watch it, like, since I've, since the first time I saw it and I know what the twist will be at the end and I know that he has passed away and and I know the sort of timeline of it. Every time I watch it subsequently, I wonder if that kid is supposed to be him. And I don't know if I've decided one way or the other. I'm wondering Mm. if you have a read on that or if you're kind of with me where you're stuck. I'm decidedly in the Simone camp. Yeah. How do you explain the weird noise that he makes? Uh, kid wearing a kid wearing a burlap sack over his head probably for the first time and just trying to scare his mom so he's probably just doing for the first time <laughs> well i would hope it was a kid the first time a kid I wish had, that a sack kid had more experience head. with a burlap sack over his head <laughs> yeah i mean i think i definitely lean towards it being him because i don't 
I can't think of any other reason he would be wearing what he's wearing when he when she finds him at the end if that wasn't him. Like I can't imagine a scenario where he's trapped in the basement and the, and is like scared and alone and then decides to do a costume change. <laughs> like <laughs> it seems like that's probably what he was wearing when he got stuck down there. Yeah, that- like he put it on to scare his mom because he's mad at her. That and also I think to myself why would Tomas have any reason to do that to Laura? Right. Right. Because like you were saying earlier, you don't see Tomas as the villain. Like Tomas wasn't this evil kid who had this crazy murder streak. Like he was he was just this unfortunate child, but he wasn't this malevolent evil little kid that would try and like clear the house that he grew up in of these strangers. Like he's not trying to haunt them out of their house. Right. And clearly it seems like they want her to stay. So I don't know. Like, I don't know why he would have any motivation to try to scare her away when it seems like all of the kids really want her to stay in the house. Yeah. So those two Guys, things are why I think it's definitely blowing someone. my mind. <laughs> Hannah, aren't you glad we decided to cover this movie? I am seeing this movie in a whole new way. And I'm a little drunk. <laughs> So it's also even more effective. (laughs) Um, I'm like, what? How did I never see this before? What movie was I even watching? (laughs) Sounds like you got to watch it again tonight and Mm -hmm. then record your live uh, feelings for everyone. Oh, God. (laughs) Um, So I want to give a couple, like, here are my my lingering thoughts. Uh, So this movie... Uh, is one of the largest grossing, um, or I'm sorry, not grossing, but like biggest box office openings um, in Spain for a Spanish movie, which is kind of a big deal. Um, and it's kind of it a big pre- deal. <laughs> it premiered uh, at the Cannes Film Festival. Con, con, Hannah, how do you say it? I mean, I've heard it like, I don't know. I mean, I've. Uh, <laughs> Hannah, your friend has gone to this film festival. How does he say it? Yeah, but people say it's supposed to be like con, but then when you say con, sometimes you sound like a dick and people just still say can, so. Well, it premiered at the fill in the blank film festival. The Wrath of Con Film Festival. The Wrath of Con Film Festival. And it received a 10 minute standing ovation. Um, which, which is I was, crazy when you think about it. That's a yeah. long ass it's time. It's a long time to stand. Like, I would say it's well-deserved. And I will also point out, because this just made me giggle, when I was Googling right before we got online, um, I like to sort of um, poke around at other reviews and see how people received the different movies. And uh, my partner and I have mixed feelings about... Uh, Oh, gosh, what's his name? A.O. Scott, the, who's a film critic. Uh, mm. Hot Takes, he reviewed this movie in 2007 for the New York Times, and he did not like it. And Whoa. talked about how it's, like, very rote and, like, relies on jump scares and doesn't do anything new. Did and I was like, movie? you... I know! I had literally just finished telling Jeremy, like, very in a very impassioned speech how this movie manages to be like really tense and scary, but also heartbreaking and have a movie like it's really hard to have a movie that ends with the death of a child, which was 
unintentionally caused by the parent. Like this parent, she finds her son. She finds her son and realizes that she unintentionally led to the like created the circumstance that led to his death. And she finds his body and is like cradling his body. The fact that that is a movie that can still end and feel uplifting (laughs) and be a movie that's scary Mm -hmm. is mind boggling. And so reading that review, I was like, I don't feel like you watched the film. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and for somebody to watch this movie and at the time it came out and, and feel that it was like, like treading, uh, previously walked paths. Like, I feel like the, right. when this movie came out, it was really in a place that was... Like, I really think rewatching this movie now with how big, like, atmospheric horror movies have, like, grown and risen to a prominent place where it's like, if everything in the movie is wrapped with this, like, tense, foreboding feeling, then everything is scary. Right. But I think, like, when this movie came out, that wasn't necessarily the formula. No, definitely. Um, Well, guys, I think um, I have a feeling how this is going to go, but Reed, you may have noticed that Hannah and I use a very, very um, well-calibrated, patent-pending system of rating where we rate a film on a scale of one to five Bloody Marys with toppings of your choice. Uh, Out of five, how many Bloody Marys would you give El Orfanato? I would say four, four and a half and extra jimmies. (laughs) Oh, stellar. I love it. I love it a lot. We've never had that topping added. Uh, Hannah, what about you? Um, I think I would give this movie, have I done a five out of five before? I don't know if you have. I don't this think may I be have. Unprecedented I think territory. this is my first five out of five. Like, I truly love this movie. I think it knocks everything out of the park that it does. And to go back and watch it and still have it freak me out is such an accomplishment. Like... Five out of five Bloody Marys full of olives. (laughs) Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Now, Hannah, when you fill all of those pine glasses full of olives, how much Bloody Mary are you actually getting in there? (laughs) That's so true, because that was a problem I had when I actually did that, was uh, the Bloody Mary mix and vodka situation was no match for the amount of olives that were actually in the (laughs) I'm getting a stomach ache just thinking about it. Oh, wait, I I forgot that these were alcoholic drinks, and I heard the word topping, and I just thought ice cream. That's why I said Jimmy's. Oh, no, we like it. Oh, I like that, too. It it felt so right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Wow. I mean, Hannah, I think I'm going to wade into unprecedented territory as well and give this movie a five out of five, which I've never done. Check the record. I'm so shocked. (laughs) Um. No, I mean, like, this movie is absolutely stunning. I think the fact that I can't say enough that this movie is able to straddle so many different atmospheres and do all of them 
justice and sort of hold all of them at the same time. Like even the scenes that are scary, there are no scenes that are so scary that you forget the emotional stakes and like the grief that our protagonist is carrying. I think that is a feat in and of itself. And for that movie to be one that the three of us were able to rewatch during a pandemic when things are admittedly bleak um, (laughs) and still come out of it feeling good. I think it just like, it really, really, I cannot speak enough about the way that this movie is able to um, really eloquently deal with very complex emotions in a way that does not feel heavy handed and feels very genuine, but still leave you feeling hopeful at the end. Yeah. I so. mean, I totally agree with that. Same. So people may have noticed that in the current, uh, state of affairs, we've been doing something a little bit different within <laughs> Lady or news. We have talked about businesses. We appreciate, we have talked about, women doing cool things. We have talked about mom pit bulls raising rescue animals that are not dogs. And (laughs) this week, (laughs) um, we're going to promote a, uh, a creative creator who is creating things for a good cause. Do you like how many times I said creative? We are talking about a brand new website which just launched called bettershirts.org. It was uh, created by our very own Hannah, and I would love for you to tell us about it, Banana. Um, I love how you said creative so many times because, fun fact, I was voted most creative at Wilmington Friends School. A high school we all went to. A high school we all went to, but um, a different girl in my class was voted weirdest. So they decided to give her most creative because it sounded better than weirdest. Um, And they gave me quirkiest instead, which was chosen by Miss Woodward. Uh, Well, Hannah, if it makes you feel any better, um, (laughs) I, I have heard that people in my grade wanted to give me best smile, but because I was a victim of bullying, some of the mean girls in my grade said that wasn't allowed and I got like a very shitty bland superlative instead. Did did you hear that from me because I uh, bitched out someone in your book when they were talking about you when I was in the classroom? I may have heard it from you. Anyway, <laughs> tell us about bettershirts.org. Guys, fun fact, that's how I literally broke my tooth. Wait, what? <laughs> I I I was eating a lot. I had just put a lollipop in my mouth and I overheard it and it was like, one of the few moments in all of high school that I had a backbone ever. And I, like, jumped up and said something. And then I bit into this lollipop and literally shattered my tooth. Ouch. <laughs> God. Guys, get you a sister who will break her tooth to defend your honor. <laughs> I have a fake tooth and I actually used it today. Um, when I needed to get my two and a half year old to stay still so his mom could take a picture on a, of a rash on his back. I look in my mouth and see if he could figure out which tooth was fake. Oh, my goodness. So, basically, I've made you a better nanny is what you're saying. (laughs) Anyway, so I started started an organization (laughs) called bettershirts.org. Right now, it's just in Chicago, but my hope is it will expand to other places. But they are fully handcrafted, hand-painted T-shirts, sweatshirts, kids' shirts, um, 
in all of the shirts right now, their slogan corresponds to a particular organization or issue um, in the city of Chicago, and 15% of the proceeds go towards a charity that corresponds with that issue or slogan. Um, and yeah, it's a, uh, it's all hand, hand done, hand painted, hand everything. So hand it's like everything. a really extensive process per shirt. <laughs> yes. Hand <hand-ed> everything. <laughs> yeah. Can you Not... give us an example of what one of the shirts might say and what kind of, uh, cause it might benefit? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, our, um, the shirt I started it off with was a shirt I had actually made for myself that says Chicago is better. Um, and I got a lot of compliments on it and that kind of gave me the idea, but the Chicago is better design. The shirts that correspond with that go toward the Chicago community COVID-19 response fund. Well, that's awesome. And I'm very glad you're selling them. And, uh, Jeremy and I, and a couple of our other friends that are Chicago transplants, uh, who love Kansas City are going to buy these and wear them around Kansas City. <laughs> Do it. I, I think it's also just a great, it's a it's such a thing for uh, if you have pride in your city that I hope that it expands enough that I can expand it to other cities as well. Yeah, when are you going to start one that's like Wilmington is better? <laughs> and like <laughs> you and Reed and I can each have one. Yeah. But you also have to like specify in tiny letters. It was Delaware, not oh like, right, North not North Carolina. <laughs> womp womp. But oh my goodness, I've already I've only had like six uh six orders so far, um and I'm already looking at like I don't even know like thirty hours of work. So it's pretty. <laughs> It's pretty serious, but I'm really excited about it, and I want people to support it. Yeah, well, I'm very glad you're doing it, um, and I'm I'm glad you let us share it on the podcast so people can order some. Can I also promote the soundtrack for the orphan- orphanage real quick? Absolutely. Fernando Velasquez did the music for the orphanage, and it is a beautiful gothic score. Because uh, soundtracks are my thing, so I'm always listening listening out for the background music. And it's just, it's a hauntingly beautiful score. He also did the music for uh, Crimson Peak, so he has that sort of gothic theme to his music. There are so yeah. many parallels between that movie and this movie. I love that. So I just wanted to mention That's that awesome. before we ended, because it's just, it was a great soundtrack. Yeah, no, it's a be- it is a beautiful score, and like haunting and very like dreamy sounding. Um, Reed, is there anywhere on the internet that you would like to find, tell people to find you? Uh, sure. If anyone's curious, I'm on Instagram at Reed, R-E-I-D, H, Schmidt, S-C-H-M-I-D-T, and I do a lot of baking. So that's what you'd be in for if you found me. He does, and also he grew a great quarantine beard and, uh like announced it in Marvel-esque fashion. It was really uh, one of my favorite pieces of media to come out of quarantine. <laughs> oh, thank you, Sophie. But you know, you know the beard's really gone awesome. now, right? I know, okay, just, but like I just can, making sh- a just girl making sure. pretend. 
Uh, Hannah, since you don't have Instagram, Reed grew a beard and then filmed a video that was like when Captain uh, America comes into Endgame Infinity and he has War. a beard, and they were and they're Semantics. like, whoa, yeah, right. That I don't one. know what that means either, but okay. <laughs> it's where Chris, well, it's, it's where Chris Evans revealed that he had a beard. And the internet went crazy, and then Reed recreated it in his apartment in L.A., and it was awesome. <laughs> Hannah, where can people find you on the internet? They won't find me, but you can find my shirts I'm making for charity at Better Shirts Chicago on Instagram. At Instagram? <laughs> on on in, in Boat dashes in the spaces, and you'll find it. <laughs> Guys, Hannah just got Instagram, and she's still very confused by it, so uh, give I'm her very, some time. very confused about... Uh, a lot of stuff about that app. Uh, Reed, thank you so much for joining us this week. It's been a pleasure to have uh, really like my horror godfather. And so in some ways, our horror godfather on the show. Very oh, thank true. you for having me. And that's a really sweet thing to say. Reed, you are so <laughs> responsible for both of us getting so into this. I can either say I'm sorry or you're welcome. <laughs> Definitely go with the second one. Let's now go with that the should be one. the slogan of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Hannah, do you want to, uh, what do you, what do you tell the people? Always pee after sex. Clink! Clink! <laughs> Clink. <laughs>